This episode of Rabbit Hole was brought to you by Torpedo Juice. Torpedo Juice is slang for an American alcoholic beverage, first mixed during World War II, consisting of pineapple juice mixed with the alcohol-based fuel that was used to power Navy torpedoes. The popularity of torpedo juice led to an arms race of sorts between the Navy and the sailors, with the Navy mixing various poisons into the fuel and the sailors finding ways to separate those poisons back out. Unfortunately, the Navy eventually adopted the Mark 18 electric torpedo, which obviated the need for alcohol-based torpedo fuel. If you'd like to join Torpedo Juice in supporting Rabbit Hole, please go to patreon.com slash rabbitholepodcast. Welcome, everyone, to Rabbit Hole. This is Sparky Abraham here with a new installment of the Is MMT Real series. It is just me today. You do not have Pete. I'm so sorry. But in order to make up for this terrible situation, I have a very extremely special guest and interview today. I'm talking to Sam Bell. Sam is a uh, state senator for District 5 in Rhode Island and a uh, self-described, uh, you can tell me if this is unfair, self-described vulgar mmt <laughs> I've been talking to Sam online for a little while about the ways that MMT intersects with state politics and the ways in which I've been kind of getting that wrong and don't understand what I'm talking about. So I'm really happy to have Sam here uh, to talk to us about, about state stuff. Hi, Sam. Hey. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, of course. Okay. Let me set up my own ignorance here. Here's what I've learned so far in the MMT series. I've learned that there's a thing called fiscal sovereignty. And fiscal sovereignty is very important to think about correctly. And that this is essentially why when people talk about the government as if it's a household in terms of spending money and not spending beyond its means and not spending more than it takes in, Fiscal sovereignty is kind of the reason why that's a wrong way to think about things. I, as a household, do not have fiscal sovereignty. I can't print money. My debt is not denominated in money that I have control over. I need to go get money in order to spend money. Versus the federal government, that's not the case, right? This is the whole thing we've been talking about ever since episode one. The federal government does not need to collect money in order to spend it. The federal government creates the money and that the proper control on its spending should be macroeconomic consequences like inflation, but not, you know, a scarcity of U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. Now, based on that kind of dichotomy, it seems to me like a state like Rhode Island, for example, is kind of kind of more like a household, right? Like Rhode Island, in order to spend money, it spends U.S. dollars and it doesn't have control over creating U.S. dollars. And so what what use is MMT for a state senator like you? Like, why why are you paying attention to this other than to say the federal government needs to give me more money? Well, because states absolutely do have the power to create money using the exact same process as the federal government does. What do you mean? And, and when you say create money, like we're talking about, like, create U.S. dollars. Create U.S. dollars using the federal dollar creation process. Okay. What is that? So... The way sometimes people will talk about state governments and MMT spaces and, you know, they'll say, oh, states are not currency issuers, they're currency users, and, and they don't have this federal money creation power and all of that. The reality is that Congress has passed a whole bunch of laws to implement all sorts of programs that give states the ability to create money using the federal money creation process. Congress has passed all sorts of laws to delegate the federal money creation process to the state level. And that is most of what state budgeting is about. If you're looking at policy issues at the state level, there's tons of federal money everywhere. And states make all sorts of decisions that create federal funds all over the place. And sometimes when people at the academic MMT level or the sort of fancy official MMT level talk about 
MMT's application, the state level, they say, oh, well, maybe you can just ask the government, federal government to create more money for you or things like that. Or maybe you can create your own currency or more reasonably, I think maybe you can use state bonds um, and turn them into something more like money by creating a payment system that increases the liquidity or by accepting them in taxes so that there's more demand or things like that. But you don't have to do any of that to understand why or to be able to create money as a state government understand why mmt is relevant to the state government level let's talk about specifics like the biggest state program is medicaid in any state the biggest program on state level is medicaid the way medicaid is funded uh, according to federal law is that states put up a certain amount of money and then the federal government creates funds to match it using the exact same federal money creation process that MMTers talk about at the federal level. It's the exact same process. It is federal spending. It's just federal spending that is controlled by states. So specifically, there are four different matching fund formulas. All this stuff gets very complicated. Part of the reason we don't talk Mm -hmm. about it is that the specifics are very complicated. But like, this is how it works. You can look up the law. You can look it up on Wikipedia. Like, this is absolutely how Medicaid funding works. So like, you create a certain amount of spending. And there are, depending on which population you're part of under which circumstances, the feds will match. It varies from on average of about $2 for every state dollar to about $4 for every state dollar, depending on your state. So let's say, you know, you create a new program and that new program you're going to have, it's going to have an implication for state funds, but also an implication for federal funds and usually more federal funds. Mm -hmm. And so... Most of the money that goes into funding all sorts of state programs is newly created federal money. Mm -hmm. And that's just the reality of of how it works in Medicaid specifically. Different programs will have different federal funding rules. Some programs have very little federal funding. Some programs have large federal block grants uh, where states get a set amount of money they get decided to spend it. But all sorts of programs, states are able to make decisions that cause federal money creation. And the decisions that cause federal money creation are the most important thing that state governments do in terms of the budget, far and away. And they are the meat of state government budgeting. They're the thing that matters most. The most important thing for your state legislators to care about is that program. And it affects all, pretty much all of the core things that we argue about at the state level. If you want to create more health care for poor people, if you want to address housing, if you want to address food insecurity, if you want to create conservation funding. All of these things, state government decisions, involve creation of federal money using delegated powers delegated by Congress. Okay. So I think there there are a couple things going on here that I want to ask you about. Okay. So like, number one, you're saying that there are, there are these kind of specific programs that are very, very, you know, big and important and constitute a large part of what states do politically and with money. But there's specific programs like Medicaid, where the program will be, you know, state spends on this sort of defined or at least semi-defined area, programmatic area, and the federal government will match or often more than match, right, two times, four times, whatever Mm -hmm. the spending from the state. And so in that circumstance you're still kind of constrained in terms of what the pro like, you know, I, I imagine that that Rhode Island couldn't go out there and be like, okay, you know, we're going to, um, we're gonna through we, we recognize, for example, that I'll just pick something from from my experience, right, that like, being in debt is a very uh, hazardous thing for your health. So we're actually the state's going to put in $10 million to just buy a bunch of people out of debt and federal government, please give us our $40 million to do the same as part of the Medicaid program, right? Like it's not, there are some guardrails on that in terms of what actually you can do. In other words, it's not like you've got the, you've got the power to print money within certain bounds set by the feds. Sort of, but in your specific example, Like, yes, all of this exists in the bounds set by Congress. The whole state money creation is all about understanding the very complex, the very specific rules that Congress has laid down for states to create money. I'm not saying that states can use the federal money creation process however they want. They have to use it within the very complicated system set forth by Congress. But a lot of it, specifically within Medicaid, but often it's actually 
at the president's discretion. Congress has delegated that discretion to the president. So Medicaid has all sorts of wide waiver authority. And I believe in the specific example you give it, if we had a more mm -hmm. progressive president, there's a strong case to be made that people in extreme debt, debt relief, can actually have a health impact. Yeah, I think and that's so true. And that so sometimes it might be more cost effective even, or a very high actually, like, particularly in terms of mental health. It's often a very strong, very strong risk factor for many types of mental illness to be in debt. And so to address certain behavioral health related issues, there's a strong case that in fact, specific debt relief may well be one of the more cost effective things that can be done with the Medicaid program. And there may well be a process where a more progressive president could work with states to create a waiver to do this. Mm -hmm. Frequently, states propose to have the, the president to give them a waiver to allow them to provide housing through Medicaid. Now, Medicaid does provide housing in a number of existing cases, but to provide housing outside of the specific limited cases which Medicaid already provides housing. Mm -hmm. So I think that the specific example you gave is something that probably could be worked out with a more progressive president in coordination mm -hmm. with a progressive state. But it probably cannot be done without CMS approval. That being right. said, there are ways in which states can just bring down pure federal funds to do certain programs. Yeah, how do you make just it to, rain? Right. So there, outside of Medicaid, there are lots of examples. Let's stick within Medicaid, for instance. There's something called the Medicaid shift. And this is something that states do all the time. Rhode Island did this with the hospitals. The feds allow you to charge up to 6% of patient revenue in taxes on healthcare providers. So let's say you have an area where there's healthcare provider tax at under 6% or there is no healthcare provider tax in a certain class of healthcare providers. You raise the provider tax, let's say you raise it by $20 million. You then take those $20 million, you invest those $20 million in higher Medicaid reimbursement rates for that class of providers. You then, so let's say that it's a two to one ratio. Let's say that state puts in $20 million, the feds bring in an additional $40 million. You're then increasing the amount of expenditure on that class of providers by $60 million, net of the $20 million in taxes. That class of providers gains an additional $40 million to direct to healthcare for low-income people at no net cost mm -hmm. to state taxpayers. It's a mechanism known as the Medicaid shift. Rhode Island did this with the state hospitals. States do this all the time, and pretty much every state in the union has existing Medicaid shift capacity because they've not maxed out their provider taxes across the class of providers that they're able to charge up to 6% in provider taxes for. Okay, and let me just kind of step back and be a conceptual skeptic here for a second, and then I'm also okay. going to hit back against my own conceptual skepticism because I could see somebody like listening to what you're saying, right? And you step back and you go, well, you know, okay, but come on, Sam. Like, you're not saying that the state can actually print money. What you're saying is that there are there are kind of these mechanisms set up that the federal government will print money for states under certain circumstances, but it's still really federal. You know, you're still just kind of at the mercy of the federal government. But I think the pushback on that, you know, one of the things that we've been tending to do, and, and in some ways the MMT stuff has encouraged us to do, is to think of the federal government as, as just sort of like one fiscal entity. But I think part of what you're saying is that, well, actually, the federal government is a lot more complicated than that. And within sort of the laws and existing programs, there are like, basically, uh, it's automatic enough <laughs> that states, in many circumstances, there are things that are basically just like pushing the button, like pulling the lever for more money in ways that are completely within the state's control, that it's useful to think about those as state action and not as federal action when, for example, you are trying to figure out how to make the world better because actually states are a thing that can act. Right. Well, also, I would say that pretty much everything that state governments do is constrained and given to them by federal law. Right. The feds have decided that certain areas are governed by the states. Insurance is going to be governed by the states. It used to be that banking was, and then after the Marquette decision, essentially banking is pretty much purely regulated at the federal level. Mm -hmm. Like, there are a lot of insurance bills in state legislatures because the feds have decided through federal law to give insurance to the states. Mm -hmm. it, what Most of what state governments do, not just money creation, most of what we do is specifically delegated to us by the federal government. 
or not taken from us by the federal government, depending on how you want to look at it. But basically, like most of what state governments do is, of course, constrained by the federal government. But that doesn't, I don't think that means that it doesn't matter that we have this power. And so also when MMTers and more academic MMT people, you know, talk about how MMT applies to the state level, frequently they will say, and often I think this happens mostly because MMT has exclusively gotten pushback from the right. Almost never does it experience pushback from the left. And when it does, it tends to be from like Marxism and stuff like that, but never like the idea that you need to go further along the macro lens to the left. Like, mm-hmm. like MMT does not go far. Almost never they, do they get that pushback. And so being someone who has seen politics, I've observed over and over and over again that when people have pushback only from one direction, that's going to push them in that direction. And I think this has happened with MMTers, particularly how they talk about state governments, because it's so convenient to point to states and even households to be like, okay, well, state governments do work exactly the way you think they do. States don't mm-hmm. have the ability to create money. And that's an easy thing to do to establish your like credibility when mm-hmm. people are challenging you on the federal government. You say, oh, well, states actually work that way. And the fact is, that's just not how state governments work at all. It's just not, not what happens in a state government. Most of state government policy is really about federal money creation. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes some MMTers be like very careful about it. Stephanie Kelton is one of the better ones about this, like that will sort of avoid trying to do that, especially recently. But like there will be oftentimes people who will say like, what, how does MMT apply to the state level? And they'll give examples like you ask the federal government for more power to do. You, for instance, uh, sometimes people talk about creating your own currency uh, as something states should do like to, in order to make MMT relevant or things like that. Right. Like to, to carve out some fiscal sovereignty for yourself. But what you're saying is that you've already, you've, you've got- We already have it. Yeah, you've got things you can put. Like you've got, <laughs> you've got money printers you can run. They just happen Absolutely. to say you have and, government on them. <laughs> and, 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 and not only that, but they exist in fact in a place in ways that are preferential for progressives. Like it is better for progressives for the money creation power that's delegated to state governments to be delegated specifically around social welfare programs. Mm-hmm. Like we produce the fact that the the state control over federal money creation is heavily in places like healthcare and housing and food mm-hmm. insecurity and conservation. Now also it happens to exist heavily in transportation and so that can some arguably that has led to an excessive growth of urban highways and the car mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But that shows that like the places in which we have granted this power to state governments heavily constrains what state governments do with that power. And if it were granted in a general blanket sense, states would quite frequently use it for like tax cuts for wealthy people. Right. Which, you know, before SALT, Certainly, there's an argument that to some degree, tax cuts for the wealthy were funded partially through the federal money creation process, because essentially, because of the uh, deductibility of state taxes from federal taxation. So there, I mean, that, that is an example, and it has, you know, but the way that worked is that states essentially were incentivized to create higher taxes on wealthier people, because those taxes could be partially deducted at the federal level. So state taxes on wealthy people were, in fact, partially about using the money creation process. Right, right. Because you're taking, you're just taking the money. <laughs> you're like, it's like this money would go to the feds, but we could just take it. Right. So, well, so, so your wealthy person, let's say before the, the salt deduction limits were imposed, your wealthy person, let's say that you raised, you know, taxes on very wealthy people. Um, let's say you rate someone had to pay a million dollar tax bill. They could then deduct that state tax bill from their federal income taxes and at the federal tax rate of 39.6%, then 39.6% of that would be deducted. And ultimately, right. you would effectively be leveraging the federal process because they would pay less in federal taxes. So in net, you actually are through the back end leveraging the federal money creation process. But one of the key things that's also really important to understand here is the MMT approach to sectoral balances. Mm -hmm. You know, MMT has really helped people look at the idea that the the surplus in the private economy or in certain sections of the economy is the amount of money you are putting into it. And when people talk about the federal deficit is really sort of the private sector surplus. But it's also true on a state level. And that lens is really important when you start thinking about questions of state economic growth and state macroeconomic management. 
The amount of federal money creation that goes on in a state is one of the most important variables that determines that state's macroeconomic performance. And it is meaningfully different if state policy creates federal money and injects a net amount of money into the state economy through the money creation process than if you're just moving around money within the state. So if you want to think about how state policy is going to affect the macroeconomy of your state, you need to understand the MMT perspective. You need to understand what you're doing with money creation, how the choices that you make at the state level about federal money creation affect the macroeconomic trajectory of your state. Yeah. So what you're saying is like, again, on the sort of wrong view, on the state as a household view, in the same way that MMTers at the federal level will say, well, come on, federal deficits are private surpluses, right? Well, if you've just got a household view of a state, then there's no in-state surplus. (laughs) But when you bring in the fact that you can use the federal money creation power, you know, in order to inject money into the state economy, like that's the the in-state surplus that, that you would need to have any growth at all, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know about to have any growth at all, because technically there are things that can happen with money velocity. But in in general, like the amount of money that that is injected into the new money creation that goes on in the economy. And certainly I'm not not pretending there's no private sector money creation, because of course there is. Banks, when when you and any anyone goes into debt, money is created alongside it. That includes state debt too, I imagine, right? Because that's another piece of this. So you can argue, right? You can argue about whether state government bonds count as debt. Mm-hmm. Effectively, if, if a state bond or even like a corporate bond, you can argue about whether that is in fact money creation under certain arguments. It is meaningfully different. A state bond do- is meaningfully different from a dollar to a degree that a federal treasury security is not meaningfully different from bank deposits okay. or like excess reserves at uh, a bank. It, it, there are meaningful differences, partially because there's no back-end process where they're substituted and interchanged with each other, but it's a continuum, right? It's still similar to money. You know, my wife and I moved some money from our bank account into investments, and that was, you know, we had, there was a bond index fund that probably included some state bonds and some corporate bonds. We didn't change our spending behavior hugely and, like, have less money because we move money from a bank deposits into like a bond index fund along with the stock index fund, right? I mean, so, so like, like what counts as money is certainly like debatable. And one of the key MMT points is that often wealth is more important and overall liquidity. It is as a technical point, it depends on your definition of money, whether in fact the state debt process is in fact a money creation process. And okay. so, you know, that gets into a definitional question. But basically, I mean, yeah. And But it's also important to, to know that, like, this has huge effects on all sorts of policy questions that are asked at the state level. You know, so for instance, let's look at, like, housing. Frequently, there's a debate about how we address housing in this country. It's mostly a debate that happens at the state level. And there's an argument of course, about essentially the degree to which zoning and code regulations have been a driver of excessive cost growth and sort of the, you know, and and that sort of affects middle class people's housing costs. But there's even a a broad agreement, even among, you know, people like Matt Ecclesias or many of the most aggressive YIMBYs will agree that like, there are people who are too poor for you to ever be able to fund their housing affordably through just simply reducing zoning regulations. Right. Unless you like reduced code to the point where like their housing quality was like really, really, truly terrible. But some people simply do not have enough money to purchase a home like the cost of construction of a home under there's, right. there's just no way you can do it. Right? right. You know, a newly constructed home is going to run you close to. $300,000. And even if you use aggressive cost reductions, you're not going to get it under like 200000 Right, right. And even, I mean, and, and honestly, like, there are lots of people who even, you know, if we're talking about very, very large, many, many unit apartment, like, even so, there are a lot of people who really do not have very much money at all. <laughs> right. Well, actually, and now, first, this is unrelated, but one of the, the arguments that I find most convincing against the sort of most aggressive EMB things is the idea 
just sort of assumed that as you get to very large apartment buildings, the cost per unit decreases. But in fact, there's sort of a sweet spot at a medium density and you Mm. get to really large apartment buildings in order to make it safe. You yeah. have to have like elevators, and the elevators right. have to be large enough to accommodate stretchers. And then, and in yeah. fact, you find that the per unit construction costs start rising after you get beyond a, a medium density level. Yeah, yeah. And so you actually cannot. But anyway, yeah, that's fair. I just wanted to make sure we weren't just talking about single family homes. Like it is also true. No, no, no. It's yeah. it's true across the board. Frequently, though, the debate around how we address housing costs for more low income people is similar it's it's in a similar frame a lot of progressive activists are like what we need to do is we need to fight nimbyism against public housing we need to fight nimbyism against affordable housing and so like that's the idea and so you need to fight it on an individual micro level but if you take an mmt perspective understanding that states are making decisions about how the federal money creation process works here and understand that, in fact, most affordable housing is affordable because of federal money creation, because of specific federal programs. Public housing works through the federal money creation process. You have to understand that, and you have to understand the sort of sectoral approach. In the aggregate, the most important thing that's going to determine the amount that we can address uh, housing costs for low-income people is the amount of money we are putting in through the federal money creation process into doing that. And when you say that, when you say that that's the federal money creation process, it's because of the sort of parameters that put within state discretion the ability to basically like turn on the faucet of federal funds under certain circumstances, and the state and the state basically has its hand on the knob, right, <laughs> to say like, yes, this is how much we're going to turn on here. Right. So, but let's talk specifics, right? Because this is important, and part of the reason why people don't understand this is because the details are actually very complicated. But so the, the main, there were several federal housing programs, but like, let's reduce it to some of the bigger ones. Yeah. Public housing works in the way that once you build a public housing unit, there is ongoing federal government expenditure, capital and operating subsidy that allows you to make it so that no matter how low your income is, you only pay a third of your income, a 30% of your income in rent. That's what, that's what public housing is. Now, capital and operating subsidy isn't large enough, whatever, but like, Um, That's how it works. Once you have the unit created, the federal government creates ongoing subsidies every single year to fund that unit so that the rent can be lower, as low as the person's income will allow it. Right. Right. So that it's affordable to that, no matter how little they make. But that means once you create a public housing unit, you are creating ongoing federal funding. Mm -hmm. And so public housing units are capped for each public housing authority under the Fair Cloth Amendment passed in 1998 as part of the quality housing part of the Quality Housing and Work Responsibility Act, which also gutted aid to families with dependent children turned into TANF, the so-called welfare reform, reform, quote, which is really the gutting of welfare. The housing part of that capped public housing. But Many municipalities are under their fair cloth limit. In Rhode Island, there are 731 eligible units that can be created. And so, like, from an M&T perspective, you really want to address low-income housing. You need to build those public housing units, and you need to build them in the places where they're allowable. If your community has hit your cap, like Providence, the city I represent, has only 24 units. And so it's important to understand that you can't demand that Providence create 1,000 public housing units unless... You know, people are successful at the congressional level at allowing waivers to the Faircloth Amendment, which is AOC's big, one of her big political projects I hope she's successful with. Like, you could only ask for those 24 in Providence. You need to understand those specifics and work within them. But it's also the case on the affordable housing side that there are two main affordable housing programs. And the way this works is unfortunately very convoluted, and I did not design the system, so I'm sorry. But the two ones that I'm simplifying aggressively are called the 9% credits and the 4% credits. And the 9% credits give you 9% of the construction costs, roughly the construction costs, every year for 10 years in tax credits with a 30% boost if you're in certain areas. Frequently, this can involve, and then these things are sold on tax credit markets, usually to banks. And so anyway, but the net 
production is usually more, depending on whether or not, it's usually, if you are in one of these plays with these 30% boosts, it can be more than construction cost of your unit. And then you still get to collect affordable housing rents, which are set in order to be affordable to someone making a certain percentage of the area median income. So effectively within Rhode Island, it means a two-family unit has rent, two-bedroom unit has rent capped at $900. Um, it's essentially rent control. And in order to do that, you have this, this amount of subsidies. That's how a 9% credit or 4% credit does that, except it's 4%. And so it gives about half if you're in one of these places that, that bump up the value of the credit. 9% credits are limited. Rhode Island gets like $32 million, I think, per year. 4% credits, there is a limit. And it involved, the limit is complicated because it involves whether you use something called a private activity bond. But anyway, the limit is much larger. And... Within most states, they do not hit the limit. Certain blue states will, but most states do not hit the limit on their 4% credits. And that's because they haven't designed programs to basically get there. Within Rhode Island, my intern and I looked into this. We released a report, and we have, on average, over the past seven years, missed out an average of $197 million in 4% credit funding to build affordable housing. Like, these things are really important, and if you want to address housing, you need to actually figure out how to drive more federal funding into this. And often states will sometimes create, like Rhode Island created a program to not use the 4% credit funds at all, to just fund so-called affordable housing 100% using state funding. This was more favorable to affordable housing developers. They didn't have to comply with federal regulations, and they could go up to like twice the income level that you could if you use 4% credits. And they could actually do it in a way that's quite profitable to the developer. So it was more in the developer's interests. But by doing that, we missed out on using the federal money creation process. And we missed out on really just bringing a massive stream of federal funds to addressing this problem. And so it's important to have that macro lens. It's important to understand these things if you want to understand how to address the core public policy problems facing your state. Right. Yeah, so I think this is really useful for a number of different reasons. And and one of them is, again, I've been throughout the series and just in my life, you know, thinking about federal spending as like federal spending, the thing the federal government just decides to do. But I think what you're saying is that like so much of what federal spending is and who decides what things get spent on, and particularly in these very important areas of like housing and, you know, education and, and probably a number of others. Not education. Actually, education? education education is pretty much funded using local and state tax oh, dollars. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'm sorry. And, and actually, one of the problems with education is the, that the federal money creation process cannot be used to the degree that it should be. In other words, but there but there are these very important areas where it's like if we're like if we're thinking about federal spending, the people who are making the decisions that are most effective in terms of how much gets spent and how are not federal actors they are state actors like you well i think federal actors are important but sure, like sure, of course it's but again one like what of you're the most that, like if rhode island left what did you say 197 million per year like that that is something that was just purely within rhode islanders discretion in order to use or not use right yeah I mean, so like, and this happens all the time, like the amount of money, like, like the size of some of these amounts of money that is moved based on a federal money creation. Like, so for instance, in 20, I think 2014 or 2013, when Obama decided to cut SNAP in the farm bill, one of the ways in which they cut it was by, there had been a program called Heat and Eat in which states had given $1 in their LIHEAP block grant funding to certain classes of families in order to qualify them for the supplemental utility allowance in calculation of their SNAP benefits. SNAP is the fancy term for food stamps. And so this program meant, because technically the way the federal rules work for food stamps, for SNAP, you do this, you can blow up the amount of money you get in food stamps in SNAP. So they got rid of that, and then they raised it to $20. And one cent. And so some states decided 
to Rhode Island was one of the states, mostly blue states, decided to then increase the amount they gave so that they could then qualify for that. And by moving around the LIHEAP block grant funds, so they can increase it. Rhode Island moved around like, a, like I think it was 1.3 or 1.4 million in order to qualify for almost $69 million a year in SNAP benefits. Mm-hmm. Like those things are all over state government. Like Rhode Island was in 2019 approved for a waiver to start billing inpatient substance use disorder recovery beds for Medicaid, which previously under something called the IMD exclusion rule had been required to be funded exclusively with state funds. We got approved for a waiver to do it, but then also we haven't done that. We just chosen not to do it, even though we got federal approval to do it. We just haven't done it, and we just haven't taken the state money for it. And there was a proposal to start doing that in this year's budget, and the governor cut it. Um, the agent, the Medicaid, I believe partially because the Medicaid office proposed using the same amount of state funding drawing down additional federal funds and then also increasing the amount of state funding as part of that proposal. There's a small increase in state funding because the the Medicaid office believed that given the substance use disorder related overdose crisis, substance use disorder recovery beds are really important for a lot of broader health care needs because of the overdose crisis driven by things like fentanyl and stuff like that. And so there's a broader public policy need to address the overall health care needs of the state that the Medicaid office tied to this. But it was well, very little state funding, but there's a small amount. And they really wanted to expand the amount of health care that was given to low-income people. And that was part of what the Medicaid office proposed. And it was not included in the governor's budget. Now, personally, I don't su- – I think the governor was – I think it was a stupid decision for the governor to not include it. I think it was a great proposal. I also think the same thing about all sorts of things. And some of them that involve mostly federal funds, such as there was a proposal so that when people who are released from prison can qualify for full Medicaid faster, uh, that's mostly federal funds involved in that proposal. A small amount of state funds with mostly federal funds. That was removed. It was proposed by the Medicaid office and removed uh, by the governor and the governor's initial budget proposal for this fiscal year. But that's like a lot of what state government is like. It's like that's a lot of what you talk about state budget. It's a lot. That's not atypical. That's a lot of what it is. And it's kind of like the meat of state budgeting. Yeah. Well, and so I I also think that part of what I'm hearing in terms of maybe a helpful reframing for me and tell me if I've got this right is like usually when I hear or think about the sort of federal delegation to states of federal programs. It's in a very negative context, right? Like you hear about states taking their TANF money and using it on abstinence classes or whatever, right? Like that kind of thing. You know, we're basically, we're giving states discretion in order to not give poor people money in order to cut back Medicaid in order to, you know. But part of what I hear you saying is like, and so, sorry, and as a result of that, a lot of the push that you get from people is like, you know, no, 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 we need these to be federal programs. We need like big, powerful, generous federal programs. And and I think part of what you're saying is that there are lots of ways for states to, to actually use their discretion to increase, to do better than the feds basically like necessarily expect or want you. In other words, like we hear a lot about the negative state discretion in these programs, but there's a lot of space for positive state discretion, which will drive additional federal money money creation and actually accomplish a lot of the goals that we want to accomplish. Like that possibility is already there. I mean, to be honest, I don't think this is a good way to set up these programs. Like I think <laughs> Medicaid should be set up exactly like Medicare. Yeah. And it should just be that Medicare covers low income people. If it were up to me, simply Medicare would cover low-income people. And if you had a low, in, you know, your income were less than 133% of federal poverty level, you'd automatically qualify for Medicare. Quite frankly, I mean, obviously, I think everyone should qualify for Medicare. But I'm not saying it's a good way to do it. I think this is the way it is. This is what American states are. And, like, I think a core part of the MMT insight is that you look at the le- specific legal and power relations that actually exist. And you don't like sort of pretend that it's different to make it work for your model. Like you look at the world as it is and you look at how those legal relations affect things. And so then you make decisions based off that. Uh, And that insight, which is, you know, it seems 
obvious, but it's actually like remarkably powerful. That insight, if you start applying it to state governments, it you know it completely reframes how you look at all state policy issues. And I would go further, and I would say that to a lesser degree, but a still important degree, even households have some of the money creation power. Ah, okay. Well, so wait, that's very interesting, and I want to get there. But just for a second, back on the states, would you also say though that like the fact that this is the legal policy reality right now in terms of what state powers are, that some of the attention actually would be well spent, some of the attention that is almost exclusively focused on on the federal government, particularly within the MMT circles, would, would be well or better spent actually looking at these kind of complicated state dynamics and you know like we maybe we could accomplish some goals now rather than pushing uh just constantly trying to push them on oh yes yeah 100 percent. and i think like often part that's especially true because complexity is one of the main obstacles to addressing these things i have spent more time as a state senator than anything else understanding how these complicated federal funding delegation of federal money creation power programs work to figure out how you can leverage federal money creation to improve the Rhode Island economy and to address the most important pressing needs of the people of my district and the people of the state as a whole. It's really, really complicated. And that's the main obstacle. People make really dumb decisions because these things are incredibly complex. So one of the things that I would go even further on is to say it's also the case that states plus the federal government have an enormous amount of spending power that and policy discretion, including of federal money creation, that does not involve Congress whatsoever because Congress has delegated to the president an enormous amount of discretion. For instance, and so right now everyone's like, oh, you know, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, we can't do X, we can't do Y. Joe Biden has massive discretion in health care, in housing, in all these things, using the federal, the regulatory authority to alter various rules. Joe Biden, there was, Biden can give out way more IMD waivers and address and fund a massive amount of money into addressing the core mental health needs of the people who have most serious mental health challenges in our country. So that's something that Joe Biden can do. They did it in Vermont. They can do it in other states. Uh, you know, or Donald Trump, in, as part of the federal state of emergency, shut down all Medicaid terminations in America and increased the main Medicaid reimbursement or one of the main Medicaid reimbursement rates, the so-called FMAP, by 6.2 percentage points. So states got 6.2 percentage points more. Joe Biden's decision about when he kills these. He's right now talking about killing these these policies, which are purely federal regulatory policies, affects state government spending to a hard, heavy degree. And nobody is talking about this. Or very few people. There's a whole bunch of things, oh, Joe Biden shouldn't, and there's been some activism around student debt, that he shouldn't suddenly start student debt repayments. And if he starts student debt repayments, it'll make people mad, and they'll vote for Republicans, and it'll be bad. And that's all true. It's also like from a human perspective. But it's much more important, and not that I'm, you know, diminishing the importance of stopping student debt repayments. It's far more important that Joe Biden decide to not kick off like 7 to 10 percent of Americans from their health care right before the elections, which he's currently on track to do by turning on Medicaid terminations. And like when I was first running for office in 2018, Rhode Island had done a big Medicaid purge because of complicated things involving having a Medicaid director who was a former health insurance executive and had a very cruel approach and a governor who was incredibly right-wing. In summer of 2017, Rhode Island had done a Medicaid purge where they kicked people off of Medicaid using Medicaid terminations, proceeding, quote, as aggressively as we can. That policy, people got like, I believe, one letter. If they didn't respond within 10 days, they were gone. There was no due process. And states control how they do this. They have to kick people off Medicaid if they're ineligible, but they control how aggressively they do it and how much discretion they give for like the human needs and realities of people. And this, you know, had, I believe, kicked off like 2% of the state population. 
It was one, the, I heard about it over and over and over again when I was campaigning, particularly in more low-income parts of my district. And people were like, well, I lost my... And like, even if they were ineligible, like I had a constituent who was in the hospital for cancer treatment. And the only reason she found out she was ineligible was that when they sent her, uh, the hospital sent her a bill for $30,000 because she thought she was covered under Medicaid. She could have, you know, gotten, had they told her she could have gotten on her husband's insurance, but she didn't. And like, in the end, she was able to keep her house because of a court case. But like, there are really horrible human implications behind these policies, as well as macroeconomic implications. And nobody pays attention to this stuff. Uh, but the state money creation power, like Joe Biden's within the the control of the public health emergency, Joe Biden has massive power right now over what state governments do. And it there's no Joe Manchin, no Kirsten Cinema excuse for uh, maintaining the public health emergency and for not kicking off seven to ten percent of Americans right before the election from their health insurance and throwing them on the whims of the private market. Yeah, great. So again, I think you know taking the sort of ethos of we need to be paying attention to how things actually work and what the laws are and what the mechanics are and what's really happening as opposed to the model or sort of mythology or how we think about this and prioritize and actually looking at what's happening. I think what you're saying is like, yes, that's complicated. It's also extremely important. It's extremely consequential for people. And it involves taking a deep and close look at, at what states are doing much more than, than the focus tends to be. So I want to make sure because you had mentioned earlier in the recording, and then you also mentioned before we started recording that you have a little bit of beef in terms of not thinking that a lot of the MMT folks kind of push the theory and push the possibilities far enough. And so I want to make sure that we get into that. And maybe that's related to what you said briefly about household money creation. But uh, let's start with like, what do you mean when you say when you say that, that it's not pushed far enough? Sure. I mean, so part of it is related to the question about state money creation, right? I, MMTers have done some, I'm not sure that it's a mistake. Like, they have been continually pushed from the right, and they've had to establish their credibility over and over and over again. And the biggest problem MMT has faced for a while was that people were like, oh, these people are crazy. And they needed to establish credibility, and that was most important in terms of doing their arguments and winning their arguments, which they were very successful at. And one of the things they did, which I'm not sure was a mistake, is they would come up with various ways to establish credibility, often by glossing over things. It's very easy to say, oh, it definitely works this way with states. It works this way with households even though households similarly have federal programs, not to the same degree as states, but like have ways in which Congress has sometimes given people ability to make certain choices that then unlock certain amounts of federal money creation all over the place. And that actually very meaningfully affects how households actually operate. Yeah, I not like that would have sounded states, crazy to me before we talked about the states, but now I can kind of see the connection, right? Like the analogy. Sure. Yeah, you have children, you get a child tax credit. I mean, it's not the same level, certainly, mm -hmm. but like, it's you there. know, it's it's absolutely there. And in in terms of like, you don't have the same level of choice as a household. Like, you don't have the same level of like setting policies that unlock other things. But many of the choices you make as a household are constrained and heavily affected and do affect the federal money creation process through the ways in which Congress has written rules in which different individual choices of households will then affect other federal money creation things. Yeah, and I mean, it's, kind of, it's kind of a reverse way of thinking about it from the way you normally think about it, right? Which is like, well, actually, this is, you know, Congress or the federal government is using its money creation power in order to incentivize or disincentivize or its taxing power, or whatever, to incentivize or disincentivize personal household choices. But basically what you're saying is you can also look at that the other way and say, well, that means that households can make certain choices that will that will have money creation consequences. And I will argue further that individuals in the United States of America have a societal responsibility, if you want to operate ethically, to think about how your decisions as a household trigger certain things about federal money creation in a way in which that, that affect the macro economy of the country. And to be like... We have a societal obligation to act in a way, in addition to a bunch of other ethical constraints. So one of the ethical concerns that should face households 
is how whether the way that you act maximizes the macroeconomic benefit of the country. Okay. Like there isn't an argument that you should make decisions. You should be more willing to make a decision if it will bring in additional federal money because if, say, the economy is depressed, because that will increase the amount of uh, aggregate stimulus being brought into the private sector and help the country as a whole, rather than if you make a decision where you would, say, get the same amount of money through some other means. So, like, if you buy an electric car and then trigger an electric car tax, I'm not sure exactly what the current state of that is. Let's say there's an electric car tax. You buy an electric car, you trigger an electric car tax credit. Um, And... Therefore, you that might be an additional reason to do that, that it was paid for partially through federal money creation if the economy were depressed and you felt that there were a need for more federal money creation in the economy as a whole. Your ability to make that choice, that should be part of your decision making for your broader societal responsibility as an individual or household. Um, now, I don't think it's the same. It affects the anywhere near households to the same degree it affects states. But I also think in terms of how we think about households and the choices households make and choices households should make, you can't pretend that that doesn't exist and that's not part of how households work. And so this, it households, even households, do not actually operate in the sort of cartoony way people sort of talk about households operating because the federal money creation process is knitted into the American economy all over the place. But to go further and to talk about MMT as a whole, part of the reason why MMT has made these statements about state governments that are just not accurate in terms of how state governments actually work is because MMT is constantly challenged and told constantly, like, you guys are, are crazy. And one of the ways you can help establish is by saying, well, it really does work this way with state governments. We understand that with state governments. We understand that with, you know, households, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that applies all over the place. And this is where you get into the kind of things that get many of the academic MMT people kind of mad at me. Like, if you think about the challenge that America faces today, like one of our big public policy challenges is inflation. And for a long time, MMTers were really like, okay, once you start getting inflation, you have to start reducing demand and you have to start actually cutting spending. Like, But also they understand that inflation is way more complex than that. But they have said publicly and over and over and over again, like reducing demand is the main way to do it. Now, what I would argue being, you know, is that, in fact, the whole concept of supply and demand is wildly oversimplified. And I believe in a more heterodox microeconomics in which all sorts of decisions are not made exclusively because of supply and demand factors. Those are some of them, but there are a whole bunch of other things. One of the things I would say is that, like, and I don't want to get, like, we don't have time to get into all the details of how heterodox microeconomics work, but one of the core principles is what's called the institutionalist view, in that pricing decisions are made because of the factors that affect, like, corporations as an institution. And that that has a lot to do with, like, like the overall ideology of the people at the corporation. And it's not just corporations are, like, self-serving actors. Like, many corporations have chosen for a while that the way they want to maximize profit is by cutting costs. But as we move into a more inflationary environment, many corporates are like, well, we can also raise prices. And that kind of aggregate view of like an attitude among American corporate price setters is one of the, I believe, one of the main factors driving inflation. And, and there are ways you can constrain that through aggressive regulation of corporate America. Yeah. MMT does not propose doing that, though. And that's hmm. a problem. When you say MMT does not propose doing that, though, I mean, I just want to, I want to try to be fair, right? Because I think that what we've heard from a number of people and, and kind of the characterization that I've more or less come to accept is of MMT as sort of a, a, a body of somewhat related, but not totally consistent with each other theories, right? It's like a, it's like an argument sphere. And so surely there are some MMTers self-described out there, maybe including yourself, who who have argued for that, right? So like, so, well, so okay, so some people on the left MMT faction, yeah, specifically Nathan Tankis and Rohan Gray, and I think maybe Scott Fulwiler, 
wrote this op-ed in the Financial Times that is constantly cited on Twitter about how it's more complicated. And that's great. And I'm glad they wrote that op-ed. But like, right now, America faces a public policy crisis. And they're, they're not walking out with the specific proposals about how you get into actually regulations of corporate America in order to reduce corporate America's driving of inflation. And in fact, you hear this a lot more often from mainstream Democrats who talk about how corporate America is driving up costs and how like we need to intervene in corporate America to address inflation. Inflation is driven by corporate greed. MMT should be all over that. And now they have come up with important proposals. One of the things that MMT has talked about, and you know, Nathan Tank has recently put out a, a policy proposal around what they always talk about is qualitative and quantitative credit controls, which is basically like don't reduce demand from reducing government spending, reduce private sector spending. And don't do it by raising interest rates, do it by reducing harmful amounts of private sector debt expansion, often harmful corporate sectors such as fossil fuel loans and luxury housing, whatever. So, and that's an important proposal and we need to talk about that. And I'm glad that they eventually, you know, brought that out. And they're limited in terms of their capacity. One of the reasons why they haven't gotten into the details of corporate America, they don't have the level of expertise because there aren't enough MMT people in order to research exactly what the right thing to do is in each individual sector in order to help constrain those things. However, they still for a while talk about when all this, one of the main, it gets back, I think, to one of the main things MMTers did to establish credibility, which is they say inflation is the constraint. Which often, if you have arguments with people from the right, you always bring this up. Like, inflation is the constraint. We believe inflation is the constraint. However, part of that is sort of implied the quantity theory of money idea. That there is nothing else that can be done to affect inflation. And, like, so if you think about, like, how Matt Brunick defined, like, vulgar MMT. Is this idea that you could go up to Nordic levels of spending without raising taxes? I think you can. I think you can if you aggressively regulate the private market to prevent rent-seeking, price-raising activity by corporate America, and if you use capital controls. And this gets into the international part. If you look like China, China is a country that's run very hot, mostly through, the economy is run very hot, mostly through massive expansion of corporate debt. And I don't pretend to be a China expert, so I may oversimplify things. But basically, China allows state-owned banks lend to politically favored uh, oligarchs who then basically are able to run their corporations on these loans that they often never pay back. And there's this massive ballooning amount of corporate debt, and that's how money is injected into the economy, which is kind of a crazy way to stimulate the macro economy, but it involves a lot of stimulus of the macro economy. There's a lot of money creation through the corporate debt sector. The way China keeps inflation in control is partially by preventing other currencies from being injected into China. There are strict capital controls. Chinese people are not allowed to go into debt in dollars. Right. And part of what drives inflation is the inflation, the, the interest rate dynamics. If you have a bunch of foreign denominated debt, your currency depreciates, uh, drops compared to the foreign currency, then your foreign debt explodes and you get these crises. And then that it becomes a cycle because you have, it becomes a vicious cycle. It's very hard to get out of. You can prevent those dynamics with capital controls, run your economy really hot, prevent foreign currencies from coming in and creating these dynamics between multiple currency interplays that really cause hyperinflation and cause inflation to get really high. And then you can aggressively regulate pricing. And then if you do that, you can run the economy really hot. You can create a lot of growth and you can keep inflation in check. And I think that's what we should do. I think that's optimal public policy. Okay, so let me and 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 again, I want to try to like, you know, uh, not to say that that your characterization of what these folks have said is inaccurate, but I do think that what we've heard, at least in our interviews on the podcast from the MMT folks, is basically like, yes, theoretically there is a level of general spending that can cause inflation, but that is not the only thing that can cause inflation, and decreasing spending is obviously not the only thing that can help control inflation. And so I don't think that like, I don't think that what we've heard at least is totally inconsistent with what you're saying in that folks have said to us, you know, yeah, you could like, 
you could end up with inflation for any number of reasons, and you could control it in any number of ways, one of which might be reducing spending, and one of which one of the ways you might end up with it is by having too much spending, but like in no sense are those kind of necessary or sufficient conditions, right? One thing I have to say to that is sure, like to some degree, many people in MMT understand many of the things that I've been saying and don't necessarily disagree with it. They will vehemently disagree often with the idea that they don't understand it. And I certainly don't mean to imply that. Uh, but sometimes there are hard edge points where like they will give the wrong advice because of this. State governments are a great example of that. Yeah. And okay, yeah, really, good. Give, what's an example one of the, of the wrong advice that here? smacked me in the face? Uh, a lot of what was said about international uh, macro, like the whole question of let's say you're in a country that doesn't have monetary sovereignty and like the idea that you have to get out of it by changing your balance of trade. Like, no, you can literally re-denominate your foreign denominated debt, impose capital controls and seize your monetary sovereignty using your state power as a as a country that doesn't have it. Like you can do it much more aggressively. You have those controls. You can do that. And you probably should. And you don't need to go through this whole like industrial policy way of like, you know, rebalancing your balance of trade. Like sometimes that may be important, but like no, you, not every country can run a trade surplus all, at all times. And you have much more power than you would otherwise assume. It's also important to note the MMTers are very correct in that they harp on all sorts of people who may like acknowledge the importance of government money creation and these heterodox ideas on page 17 of their academic papers. But what matters is the policy advice they give to policymakers and what they say publicly. So to some degree, when they're talking to a more left audience, they may go into some of these things. What matters is what they're saying publicly and what their public perception is to policymakers. And there's a reason like Matt Bruna gets to troll them by saying Joe Manchin is the true MMT senator because he's the only one who's talking about reducing spending now that we have inflation. No, I mean, that he does do that. I know, <laughs> like that's, I know. That's a, that's a, that's a, and that is because of how they have portrayed these ideas to policymakers and to the public. And so whether they understand and, you know, whether, you know, Stephanie Kelton was instrumental in elevating the career of Fred Lee and, like, has worked to help support heterodox micro ideas is one thing, right? And whether they understand heterodox micro and that, that it can change and, the, like, they, they've read a bunch of probably way more heterodox micro than I have is one thing. But what really matters is, like, like, I'm a policymaker who has to make choices about heterodox, about, about, about like microeconomic policy that affects inflation. I don't really understand because no one has ever done the research or been able to present to me like the choices I make on insurance policy. How is that going to affect pricing uh, of like cars? Like, what is the optimal policies that we should be using using our regulatory authority as state governments over all sorts of things like this? Like, how do we most optimally do that? Like, and, and it's not even presented to us as state lawmakers by MMT people that you need to be doing things using your authority to restrain corporate greed over price setting as part of our national obligation to confront inflation. They don't even go so far as to say you need to look at figure out the details yourself. Now, admittedly, they don't have the staff and expertise at like the Modern Money Network to go into the details of all of these things. Right. That's. I mean, you're talking about a lot of work in 50 states for a million different industries and et cetera, et cetera. But right, yeah. Sure. It is a lot of work. And, and that is part of the structural reason why this hasn't happened. I'm not saying that these are bad people. In fact, these are some of the I think some of the brightest, smartest, most important people who are doing some of the most important work to make our country and the world a better place. Like, I have nothing but strong admiration for all of the, like, especially the left MMT people, all the people in the MMT movement. I think that's great. But I also think we need to understand it goes a lot further than how MMT is portrayed and certainly than how it's portrayed when people are arguing with right-wing people um, in the national media. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that, um, yeah, I think this is, this has been really helpful for me at least to sort of just highlight exactly how, uh, how important and how uh, impactful these sort of state level dynamics 
are and can be and how complicated and, and how I don't understand them nearly as well as I should, given the level to which they impact my life and everybody else's, you know, while I'm off kind of like thinking about whatever federal stuff is going on, right? And I don't understand them well enough. Like often, and why I, like, I've had interactions with Pete Davis because of his, like, real job, where, like, he works on helping develop policy for progressive people interested in state government policy. And, like, you know, I may have annoyingly talked too much about, like, 4% credits in the meeting on social housing. But, like, part of the reason why, like, I ask a lot of questions to people like him about how these programs work, and often people are not primed to understand and know the answers. Like, I asked a whole bunch of questions in drafting my state Medicare for All bill. I asked. Yeah. You know, those people who work in state policy expertise and who understand and, you know, have, have bought into and believe in MMT, like, need to start understanding the importance of actually figuring out how the federal funding programs work so that when you want to do your housing proposal, you can maximize federal funding. When you yep. want to invest in healthcare, you can do it in a way that maximizes federal funding to deliver the most good and to improve the macroeconomic picture of your state. Yep. And this stuff is very complicated. And we need people who can help progressive lawmakers understand these things. Because the vast majority of progressive lawmakers have no clue about how the federal funding program works, just like most conservative lawmakers don't really understand this, because right. it's very obscure. And one of the most important things that could be done to improve public policy at the state level is to help progressive legislators understand how these programs work so that we can understand how to incorporate them and to maximize federal funding uh, when we do have the power to do that. Yes. Great. On that beautiful call to arms... I think we are at time. Sam Bell, thank you so much for coming on the Is MMT Real series on Rabbit Hole Podcast. It's been really nice to talk to you. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on. I really, really appreciate, you know, being able to share a, a somewhat more aggressive perspective here. So thank yeah. you so much for listening. Fantastic. And where, where can folks find you? Do you have anything you want to plug? So, you know, I'm a pretty low-level state politician who represents, uh, you know, one state Senate district in a small state. I mean, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Samuel W. Bell. I have a, you know, like a, a website like every other politician uh, in this country. Uh, and if you happen to live in Rhode Island, um, you know, then I may be more relevant to you. But if you don't, you know, I don't have as much relevance to you, I'll be honest. Well, I, I appreciate it, Sam. You know, I find you very relevant and I enjoy <laughs> enjoy following you online. So I hope I hope others do too. Thanks. We'll talk again soon. All right. Well, thank you so much. Rabbit Hole Podcast is produced by Dan Thorne. The music is by Danny Bradley. If you enjoyed this episode of Rabbit Hole, please, please support us at patreon.com slash rabbit hole podcast. Help us keep all of our episodes open to everyone. We can't do it without you. If you didn't enjoy this episode of Rabbit Hole, try another episode. Maybe we had an off day. 